Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Hey, this is Teray, and welcome to Pot Save the People. On this episode, we have the news as usual, and we're also joined by Sherilyn Eiffel, the President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, to help us think more about how we can use the courts as an avenue for change with regard to justice. Now, before we begin, I'll talk about two things. One is that I'm writing a book, and my book comes out in September. Uh, my publisher is Viking, and they're incredible. Uh, please go pre-order the book today. It's called On the Other Side of Freedom. We're still working on a cover to finalize it. But if you go to Amazon, search my name. It's On the Other Side of Freedom. Please pre-order it today. And people have asked me, like, why a book? Why now? And that was a question that I got a lot when I was uh, meeting with publishers. You know, I met with a lot of publishers, 16 publishers bid on the book, and and they would say, you know, like, why now? And I told them, I listened to a sermon not too long ago, and the title of the sermon was Don't Tell Your Story Too Soon. And I was so intrigued by it. I was like, what does that mean? And what the pastor says in the end is that sometimes if you tell your story too soon, all you can see is the pain, not the purpose. And I'm at a point now where, like, I can, I can think about what are the overarching themes? What does it mean? What does hope look like? What does it mean to have a seat at the table? Where do we go from here? And if I had written a book Two years ago, three years ago, I was just so close to the trauma of protest that that's the only thing I would have been able to write about. Uh, but now I have the perspective to think about what it means and why it matters. That message of don't tell your story too soon is something that I carry with me every day. I was so intrigued by that notion. And as I write this book, I'm like still fascinated by it. So please go pre-order the book today on the other side of freedom. Order one for you and your friends. And uh, yeah, well, let's go. Here's the news with me, Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and Obama's Task Force of 21st Century Policing and a current education professional. And Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist. And Clint Smith III, our resident academic. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at Dre, D-R-A-Y, on Twitter. So besides feeling awesome after our very first live show ever, what's on y'all's mind this week? There's been a... Okay, yeah. Before we even talk about what's on our minds, seriously... Huge thank you to the 1,100 people who came out and hung out with us last Sunday at the Lincoln Theater. It was incredible. Shout out to the squad. Y'all were great. The poem was phenomenal, Clint. Clint, the warm-up was phenomenal. All of it. <laughs> uh, the guests are great. I'm telling you, I'm ready for my Netflix, my Netflix stand-up special. It's coming next. Okay, so what else is on folks' mind? Because there's been a lot of stuff going on this week, including the... Uh, hopefully, probably soon to be former governor of my home state of Missouri, being walked away in handcuffs. And then he tried to say that, like, prosecutor was a shill or something like that. You know, everybody else gets arrested. They're like, you must be responsible. But him, it must be a conspiracy. You should probably catch folks up to what the Missouri governor did, just in case everybody's not familiar. Since this is a family show, I will use employee euphemisms. But he has been indicted on uh, charges of invasion of privacy. Um, because he had an extramarital affair a few years ago uh, and has admitted to the affair, but the woman that he had an affair with essentially said that she was blindfolded and bound and stripped and uh, nude pictures were taken of her and then he threatened to blackmail her should she ever discuss the affair. Um, So just absolutely disgusting behavior. that he is is accused of of displaying, um, and that's why he was arrested. So the 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 charge is invasion of privacy. 
Another thing that happened this week that's not my news, but I thought is worthy of talking about is Michael Steele. So the former chair of the Republican National Committee, the communications director for CPAC, came out and said that the only reason why he was appointed chair was because he was black. And he sort of said it like, you know, he wasn't really qualified, but he happened to be black because there was a black president. And it's like Michael Steele is still a part of the party. That doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, they're just like real out there with the way that their racism shows up. It was like taking away all any skill that Michael Steele might have had and just been like, we just used you just so you know, which we all thought anyway. But, you know, the guy just came out and said it. It is wild to see like black folks in the Republican Party, uh, you know, stay loyal to the party, stay in the party, say all these great things about the party, cover for the party. And then eventually at some point they get thrown under the bus because, you know, the party shows its true colors and everything everybody's been saying turns out to be true. Uh, one of those material impacts continues to be felt in the immigration. I won't even say conversation because, you know, we, we so often treat things like they're just a policy debate and forget that it's people's lives at stake here. Um, so it, given everything that's happening with immigration in this country, still more that is happening um beneath the surface. So in 1958, John F. Kennedy wrote a book by the title Nation of Immigrants. And that is the book that really popularized that phrase uh, when describing America's kind of unique standing in the world. In 2005, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency, or USCIS, included that phrase in their original mission statement, which read, USCIS secures America's promise as a nation of immigrants by providing accurate and useful information to our customers, granting immigration and citizenship benefits, promoting an awareness and understanding of citizenship, and ensuring the integrity of our immigration system. So uh, Trump has since appointed a new director of USCIS, L. Francis Cisna, and he just sent out a memo which indicated that that mission statement has changed. It now reads, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services administers the nation's lawful immigration system, safeguarding its integrity, and promise by by efficiently and fairly adjudicating requests for immigration benefits while protecting Americans, securing the homeland, and honoring our values. So obviously that represents a pretty great shift, not just in language, but in orientation toward the function of this agency. It went from treating people who are immigrating here as customers who deserve attention, information, and a smooth process to being about the protection of Americans and fairly adjudicating requests requests. Now, of course, there is a lot of nuance that is packed into this phrase, and the phrase itself isn't perfect. Obviously, indigenous people are, in fact, not immigrants, uh, and the original immigrants to this nation engaged in mass genocide and the theft of their land. And I will say personally, as a descendant of enslaved people, I always found it terribly silencing and inaccurate to use that phrase alone because my ancestors did not come here of their own volition. Still, though, the spirit of this phrase was one that by its removal is yet another signal that this administration and supremacy broadly is hell bent on a brand of forgetful nationalism um, in order to preserve traditional forms of power, right? That making America great again is really just about making America white again. Yeah, I think when you look at this quote uh, from Francis Cisna, who is the director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, uh, so they redefine the statement, and the quote as to why they did it was that this clearly defines the agency's role in our co- in our country's lawful immigration system and the commitment we have to the American people. Uh, and when questioned on it, he was just he said, "This is a reminder that we are always working for the American people, and it's this idea that immigrants aren't doing the country any good by coming here; that the country actually loses something." by being a nation of immigrants. And so they're just going to remove that definition, remove the laws that that bring in and encourage immigrants to come here. And I think it's just wild how that conflicts with the actual data of how immigrants benefit this country in so many different ways. And, you know, it's this strange, you know, alternative universe where immigrants are a burden on the country, despite all economic and social uh, indicators uh, of the benefits of them coming here. And I I just wonder, like, you know, what information and false information is driving that alternative universe to continue to come to that conclusion, despite all the facts and evidence to the contrary. What's interesting is that a lot of people don't know that the sort of contemporary origins of, of, quote, chain migration, which is more appropriately named family Unification is that uh, so prior to 1965 and according to 
1924 Immigration Act, which and so there are these two immigration acts, 1965 and 1924, and you can kind of think of the 1924 Immigration Act as the one that was super racist, and the Immigration Act in 1965 as the one that was less racist but still kind of racist. So this was coming out of the the civil rights movement and. Um, people were recognizing that we shouldn't have quotas uh, that were in t specifically and very clearly intended to keep the country white and keep other people from coming out. But it was interesting is that, uh, and this is exemplified by a policy from Michael Fagan, I believe is how you pronounce his name, who was a conservative Democrat and an immigration hardliner. Uh, and he proposed family unification be the pretense of legal immigration rather than the quota from or different countries. and. It's because he saw it, truly, he saw it as something that would keep the United States predominantly white since around that time, uh, seven of out of eight immigrants were still coming from Europe. Uh, but what Fagan didn't anticipate and what ended up being the case by 2010 is that nine out of 10 immigrants were coming from outside of Europe, uh, which obviously began creating uh, a country that has begun to look the way that ours does today. Uh, and, even, and today, two thirds of immigrants are coming uh, legally to the United States through family unification programs, right? So it's, I say that to say it's interesting that the idea of family unification as a as the pretense of our immigration system was created with the intention to keep the country white and then sort of inadvertently contributed to making the country uh, even more diverse than um, anyone obviously in 1965 could have anticipated. I try not to talk about Trump because, you know, you know, for all the obvious reasons, but I was even surprised. It's even it's sort of special to be able to still to still be surprised by anything he says. But let me just read this quote that he said about ICE in California. He said, "You know what? I'm thinking about doing it. We're we're getting no help from the state of California. Frankly, if I pulled our people from California, you would have crime. You would have a crime nest like you've never seen in California. All I have to do is say, ICE, Border Patrol, leave California alone." You would see crime like nobody has ever seen in this country, and yet we get no help from the state of California. They're doing a lousy management job. They have the highest taxes in the nation, and they don't know what's happening out there. Frankly, it's a disgrace. And so he's like, in his mind, threatening people by saying he's not going to deport them and illegally arrest them, and that that is going to lead to a... Like, the if ICE disappears in California, it's going to lead to a sharp increase in crime. Even though we know that, like, these myths about, like, any immigrant, like, it's just not true. And it is surprising how, not only how he continues to say this stuff, but how the news reports on it without challenging the notions itself. So, like, you read articles about him saying that, and it's not followed up with, just so you know, like, there's no data to suggest that immigrants are more violent or dangerous than anybody else, whether they have come through the immigration process or not. And I do think that we're at a point where like the media is also responsible for making sure that they counter in the same article that they report and not making people sort of go back to some fact checking website. The policies that are being enacted by this administration have real impact uh, on people's lives. The stalemate that Congress continues to find itself in around the DREAM Act uh, continues to affect people's lives. And as you said, Sam, you wonder where these facts and figures are coming from. The truth is it, these sentiments are not based on facts, figures, statistical truth whatsoever. They're based on fear. And that is why as we as responsible Americans discuss immigration, it is really, really important that we do so accurately with people first language, that we constantly remind people this is not just a theoretical conversation. This is about people's lives, their families and their livelihoods. We should also continue to remind people that immigration is not just a Latinx issue, that there are folks from all over the world who are being affected by uh, what is happening in, in large and small ways from the local, state, and federal levels on this issue, um, that it's more than about just the DREAM Act. Um, we have to think about TPS. We have to think about pathways to citizenship. Uh, we have to think about uh, ensuring that immigrants have access to all of their uh, uh, rights as people who live here, uh, work here, and pay taxes here. And I think, really importantly, we have to make sure that our language 
language does not uh, inadvertently create a juxtaposition between good immigrants and bad immigrants, between the immigrants who go to college and those are the ones we want and the immigrants who we don't want because we make other assumptions about them. So our language really, really matters all the time, but especially when discussing immigration. So my piece of news is about Florida uh, and gun violence. We've seen over the past few weeks now, you know, protests, student-led protests, the CNN town hall, so many different uh, events and actions that have brought the issue of gun violence, in particular, you know, school shootings to national attention. And in response to all of that, you know, Governor Rick Scott, Florida's governor, uh, finally has released a plan that that he thinks will address this issue of gun violence. Um, and so the plan includes a couple of things. One, it does not include an assault weapons ban, which is, has been a major, you know, demand of activists is the sort of weapon of choice for mass shooters. As we've seen, it does not include that it does raise the age limit for buying a AR-15 or other assault weapon to 21. Uh, it outlaws bump stocks. Those are the, the, it's essentially a tool to make a gun automatic that was used in the Las Vegas shooting. And it includes a couple of other measures that are a little bit more problematic. So he is calling to spend $450 million to put a law enforcement officer in every school, and as well as upgrading school security with metal detectors, bulletproof glass, reinforced doors, and other measures. So, you know, this is a state, for those unfamiliar with Florida politics, Rick Scott has been a, you know, hardline conservative governor that has sought to cut education, uh, social services, Medicaid expansion, all of these other programs that, that would help kids and families succeed. And now he's calling to spend $450 million on school police and, you know, essentially making schools uh, into prisons. Um, and so I bring this to the conversation because as we talked about with Trump making decisions and policies based on, you know, a distorted vision of who immigrants are, you know, these plans around, you know, militarizing police and essentially occupying schools with police are also based on uh, no evidence that that is actually effective and plenty of evidence that that results in school-related arrests, particularly of kids of color, uh, for, you know, very minor things like, uh, you know, disorderly conduct, disrupting class. And so, you know, I, I'm just curious if you're all perspective on, you know, this plan does contain some interesting things that are about gun control, but, you know, overall, you know, this is looking like a massive investment in militarizing schools and, and police. What we know to be true is that there was a moment of uh, pretty like gratuitous violence that was happening in the United States a few decades ago, and that was deeply intertwined into the deeply hypersegregated living conditions that many people in cities across the United States were living in. And what we know to be true is that the United States made a decision to respond with uh, mass incarceration with uh, ramping up arrest, um, with criminalizing black and brown people in, in ways that are unprecedented in, in our sort of modern, uh, modern history. Uh, and, and that obviously is why, you know, from 1970 to uh, 2010, we went from having 300,000 people in jail to 2.2 million in, in prison in jail. And I, I think that we have to be careful because you can almost see the beginnings of what could be something similar happening now. And, and what I mean by that is that people, there was so much violence and happening in the country and people were like, we have to do something about this violence. And what we did was we like locked all these people up um, in, in ways that were often indiscriminate um, and, and black people were disproportionately impacted by that phenomenon in our efforts to create a, a, a society that has better gun control, I think we also need to be thoughtful and wary of the ways in which the idea of gun control may be used in order to like further criminalize black people. Um, and I think about that in, cause you brought up uh, the idea of like schools becoming further militarized. And I think about um, the, the school discipline policies that, that exists already that disproportionately impact black folks um, and black children and, and the potential danger that is uh, sort of exacerbated when you have armed, armed people in, uh, in schools, more armed people in schools. But even when we think about 
gun control, just like how how might black people be disproportionately punished in an effort to regulate uh, guns in society in ways that we're not fully considering? Um, and I think I'm still sort of thinking through and fleshing that out. You know, as I think about this, um, I, I find that the proposals are problematic for lots of reasons, but even just on their face in the immediate things um, that his proposals are attempting to address, there's still just an abject failure. So this idea that a greater emphasis on law enforcement in schools will prevent school shootings simply doesn't bear out, including in what happened in Parkland. We know now that the school resource officer was armed and aware of the situation and never went inside the school. I think he has since resigned or been fired, one of the two. Um, but most certainly, having an armed school resource officer did not save the the lives that should never have been shed uh, uh in Parkland. Uh, and and while law enforcement hasn't been successful in preventing these kinds of tragedies, they've certainly been successful in criminalizing millions of black and brown children around the country. I will never forget having to get a seven-year-old out of handcuffs in a school building that I had walked into. Uh, and after I was done crying, I was so frigging infuriated that we had even come to this, this kind of airport security environment um, that is highly populated with armed officers is something that a lot of our low-income students are used to every single day, and it has not yielded positive results. It has been incredibly damaging in ways that I believe, unfortunately, we're still uncovering. Um, and as we said last week and this week, Gun control, yes, but the how matters just as much as the what. Uh, and just like every other policy that we talk about, we have to craft these things through the the lenses of race, of class, uh, and of oppression. And just to build off that point uh, about you know SROs, school resource officers, uh, and some of these measures, you know the the Congressional Research Services did a report on school resource officers. This was following uh, Newtown, the shoot, the school shooting there. And what they found was that, and I'm just going to quote directly from this document, which is a review of the literature on the effectiveness of school police. It says, the body of research on the effectiveness of school resource officer programs is noticeably limited, both in terms of the number of studies published and the methodological rigor of the studies conducted. The research that is available draws conflicting conclusions about whether SRO programs are effective at reducing school violence. In addition, the research does not address whether SRO programs deter school shootings, one of the key reasons for renewed congressional interest in these programs. So there has been a $750 million investment from the Department of Justice since Columbine to hire over 10,000 additional school resource officers in schools. And even to date, you know, this was happening over the past two decades. To date, the body of research does not at all address the question of whether that investment has any impact on the rate of school shootings. If you actually look at the data on the rate of school shootings, uh, there was a study conducted by uh, Adam Pa, who looked at school shootings since uh, the 1990s and found that they've actually been increasing. So his study ends at 2013, but the period from 07 to 2013 has the highest rate of school shootings in that data set uh, going back to 1990. So you know, obviously school shootings haven't stopped. If anything, they've increased. And there's no research to suggest that this strategy is an effective one. And yet that is always the sort of knee-jerk response from policymakers to invest more and more in police. And we have to just get away from that uh, that immediate sort of uh, notion that police are, the, are central to safety and instead look at the literature on what does work, like restricting access to guns. I've been thinking a lot about uh, what it takes to move the needle on some of this. And obviously, the students from Parkland are doing a remarkable job in their organizing efforts, as I think that everyone on here has, has noted. And I don't know that we've noted it on the pod. It is important for us to, to both praise 100% everything that the students from Parkland are doing and to, to wrestle with what it means that uh, young people over the last four or five years, and even before that, who are coming from communities that look different than the Parkland community, were not receiving the uh, sort of glowing and financial support that uh, many of these students are. And again, to be, to be clear, all of us believe that what the Parkland students are doing is remarkable and should be commended and should be supported. And it is also super important for us to ask ourselves as a country why Celebrities are giving $500,000 to support 
movements that come that originate in certain communities with students and young people who look a certain way and and not others um, when each of these groups of students are essentially like asking for their 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 safety and well-being to be fully fully recognized and understood and and folks can kind of talk about that more if if they want the opportunity but what i wanted to bring up is is mostly that i'm thinking about what's going to move the needle on this and and thinking about how we really just don't have a a good understanding of what bullets and what ar-15s and and assault weapons actually do to someone's body Um, i think that people operate under the illusion that a gunshot whether from a handgun or from an assault rifle is like what you see in the sort of law and order reruns or what you see in like a superhero movie where somebody kind of just pulls the bullet out of themselves with a with their fingers and then like crawls to the to the hospital or, or keeps fighting uh, and that's not what it's like at all um, i was reading a couple different pieces there was an incredible piece in huff post from several months ago i think that called what bullets do to bodies it's a long read but you should absolutely read it and there's um, some reporting that was also done by Wired uh, that was interviewing folks who have who've taken stock of this and, and are thinking about this. And uh, I just wanted to pull out a couple of things from from what I was reading. So Peter Ree, who's a trauma surgeon at University of Arizona, uh, said of the comparison between an AR-15 uh, wound and a nine millimeter handgun wound is that one looks like a grenade went off and the other looks like a bad knife cut. And then there's Donald Jenkins, who's a trauma surgeon at University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, uh, saying that, for instance, if it were to hit the liver, the liver would, quote, look like a jello mold that had been dropped on the floor. Um, And the exit wound can be nasty, a jagged hole the size of an orange, right? So these are not wholly analogous at all. And I want to be clear about that. But like, I think of what Mammy Till did um, when Emmett Till was killed, um, the boy who was killed in Mississippi for were ostensibly whistling at a white woman, which we would later find out that he didn't actually do, and was killed and mutilated and, and shot and drowned and by by a group of white men who who killed him in Mississippi and and she made a decision to like have the casket open to show to people what this violence looked like, and it is seen by many as one of the catalysts to the civil rights movement um, because it was the first time that many people were seeing the very real consequences, the violent consequences of uh, racist violence in that sort of way. I, I want to be clear again, these are not the same, but I do think about and wonder how different the conversation around gun violence would be if we actually knew and didn't have these sort of mythical conceptions of what gun violence does to someone's uh, body physically. I read a similar story uh, to the ones that you read, Clint, um, and I put it in my morning news. It was from The Atlantic uh, from a radiologist in Florida who has seen victims of AR-15s before um, and and said all all of the similar things that have already been brought up here just about the amount of destruction that comes from this gun and other high-velocity guns like it. What I also found fascinating from that particular article was understanding exactly how banning the AR-15 should work in theory. And it was a reminder that when government is as broken as it is right now, that it just wreaks havoc in lots of ways. So really, it's the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, that's supposed to review the potential impact of banning the AR-15 or AR-15-style rifles. But in 1996, there was a provision called the Dickey Amendment that essentially bars the CDC from studying gun violence as a public health issue. So in order to actually get the government to collect the kind of data and information that it would need to pursue this ban, that uh, provision would have to be repealed. And as we know, there's a ton going on at the CDC right now, including at the very top levels of leadership there. Um, And so I worry that kind of all of these layers of things that will need to happen will go unaddressed. The other thing that's interesting about the AR-15 that I learned recently was that the real issue with the AR-15 is a couple things. One, the detachable magazines uh, that can be high-capacity magazines. So like ammunition that's very easy to reload and that can carry a lot of bullets. And then the other piece is the semi-automatic nature of it, so the ability to fire in rapid succession. So over the past several decades, there has been an increase in the percentage of handguns that are semi-automatic, meaning that they can shoot in rapid succession. And 
what that tells me is that like an AR-15 ban, assault weapons ban by itself, um, like actually needs to go much further, right? And actually address some of the root causes, uh, which are these two features. So not only it being an AR-15, but being any semi-automatic gun um, and, or, and or a gun that uses these types of magazines. My news is about the cost of being poor. And I, this is one of the things I learned this week. I had no, I didn't know. Shout out to, um, shout out to City Lab. They do such incredible reporting. And I'm, I'm like always impressed by their reporting, but they have an article called The Uneven Gains of Energy Efficiency. And sort of the top line about it is like, it's all, it's a cost of being poor. So there's a study that came out in 2016 by the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. And one of the things that they found out, is that the median energy burdens for low-income households are more than three times higher than among the rest of the population. What they found out was that low-income housing is actually just, like, more energy inefficient, like it, which means that people's bills just cost so much more than they can actually afford. So energy costs increase at three times the rate of rent for everybody between 2000 and 2010, and that was just magnified by the the deep disparity that the study found um, with the cost for people in low income housing. So that's interesting. What I also didn't know is that u- utility bills are the primary reason why people resort to payday loans, and that for some people the utility bill is up to twenty percent or thirty percent of their overall income. So you know we talk often about like. Being poor isn't like people didn't choose to be poor. It's not like every every poor person in society just made a set of bad choices and insert poverty here. And the corollary to that is that like getting out of poverty is actually pretty hard because there's such a tax and a price on being poor itself. And I never thought about like what it means that places just like aren't energy efficient and what that how that adds to cost for like things like asthma and paying the bill and a host of things. So. New study came out uh, that helps, like, add texture to that. They call it energy inequity. You know, as you're saying, Dre, being poor is incredibly expensive. And I find that even the, some of the solutions folks were building as I was reading the article were themselves insufficient. So there are a number of subsidy programs that are in theory supposed to help people with these particular utility bill challenges, but they require uh, often an upfront financial investment, which is like if I if I had the ability to do that, then I'd be able to take care of the bill. And so that kind of negates the efforts of some of those subsidy programs. And then there are other solutions and programs that are built, but they advantage homeowners over renters. And obviously, for many people living in low income circumstances, renting is the only affordable option, especially as neighborhoods continue to be gentrified and housing prices continue to skyrocket throughout the country renting is the only way that some people can have a roof over their heads. And if there has to be a choice between paying the rent and and being able to pay all of the utilities, folks are going to choose their most basic need every time. So even the solutions are often insufficient, which is is a challenge given the the nuance of poverty, right? That we want to say it's just about giving people a job or it's just about giving people better schools or it's just about access to quality housing or healthcare. And the truth is, it is about all of those things, because the cyclical nature of poverty means that when one domino falls, it knocks down a whole bunch of others. So this reminds me of a study that I saw on the cost of getting to work every day. And what that study found was that it actually costs poor folks more to get to work than for folks making over $75,000 a year. Uh, And that 11% of people who paid $21 or more for their daily commute made less than $35,000. But for the highest income bracket, making over seventy-five thousand, only eight percent uh, had commutes that cost twenty-one dollars or more. As as has been the case over the last um, nine months, uh, being a being a, a first-time parent has illuminated a lot of things uh, about the way our society is set up that that I think I kind of knew, but what wasn't fully cognizant of, um, and just the way that our our sort of society is set up with regard to the lack of support it affords uh, parents who are living in poverty um, with regard to opportunities to support and cultivate and and be there for their their kids is like deeply profound. Uh, I mean, I think of uh, how expensive childcare is. I think of uh, how the hours of childcare providers um, 
precludes working parents in, who are living in poverty from being able to take on certain hours, oftentimes in in jobs that don't have the sort of level of uh, flexibility or understanding in terms of um, when you can and cannot work, right? It's either you take these or you don't. Um, and it is, and then that's compounded by the fact by if you if you don't live near your your family and if you don't have a sort of larger support system, um, which is the case for many people who are who are living in poverty, um, you have just like really limited options in terms of what you where you can keep your child, um, especially your child you know before school starts, but when they're you know five or five or six years old um, during the day, and and that obviously limits the sorts of jobs and different things you can do, and and we should have another longer episode and sort of conversation about parenting and poverty. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert, Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop.
All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Sheldon, I felt thank you for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having me, DeRay. I'm thrilled to be here. Finally. Yes. You are uh, the president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Mm -hmm. You're the seventh president Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is the Legal Defense Fund for people that don't know? Well, I think it's a great question because most people think that the Legal Defense Fund is the same organization as the uh, NAACP or that we're an arm of the NAACP. And that's an understandable um, mistake because we used to be the same organization. Um, and um, the Legal Defense Fund was founded in 1940 by Thurgood Marshall. And uh, for many years, we were part of the NAACP. And then in 1957, we became entirely separate organizations with separate boards and so forth. And so while the NAACP is a fellow sister civil rights organization like the Urban League or you know any other um, civil rights organization, we don't have any affiliation together. The Legal Defense Fund really was created to be kind of <laughs> – uh, the the organization that would fight for civil rights in the courts, you know, in this country, and it's so it's so important to think about the organization being formed in 1940. You know, first of all, it was pretty powerful to be incorporating an organization of black lawyers hmm. in 1940, right? And you know, it was a powerful statement about the intellectual capacity of the struggle for equality. And so that was powerful and important. And it's also important to remember that it's 1940. So this is a, a full 15 years before we can even describe, you know, what we think of as the start of the civil rights movement with the killing of Emmett Till and Rosa Parks, you know, in 1956. This is 1940. Hmm. So all of the work that LDF did, all of the litigation that happened in the courts, um, challenging, you know, school desegregation at the university level, um, challenging and striking down the all-white primaries in primary elections in Texas and South Carolina and other places, challenging racially restrictive covenants and housing deeds. All of that litigation happened before there even was, you know, the kind of powerful ground movement that we think well, of as the civil rights movement. I don't think movement. I knew that. Yeah. Now, how do you conceive of the law as an arbiter of, mm-hmm. of sort of structural justice? So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I... We know each other because mm-hmm. I was in the middle of the street. And like mm-hmm. that was so many of us, like that mm-hmm. was the way that we thought about it. We felt like we had voted and we had called and we'd done all those things. And like it just didn't mm-hmm. materialize. And, and in this moment, do you do you still have as much faith that the courts can be sort of a, an equalizer, if that's even mm-hmm. how you think about it, as you did when you started in your career? Like, mm-hmm. how do you conceive of the, of the role of the courts in this broader spectrum? Ironically, DeRay, in some ways, I'm maybe more hopeful because... What has been exposed about what makes the process of law and courts unequal is like exactly what, you know, I, I want to get to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about the grand jury process, which people really were not talking about at a national level and knew Didn't very little about. It at exactly. All. <laughs> and as a result of Ferguson, you know, one of the projects that we did that was that, you know, I'm really proud of was that um, we took all those transcripts from the grand jury and we analyzed them and we kind of did our own analysis to to put out there what we thought the DA McCullough really did mm-hmm. um, in that case. And so the education of people about the legal system, the fact that we are understanding the role of prosecutors, you know, in, in these cases, mm-hmm. the fact that people understand that even the impunity that has really governed these cases against police officers who kill unarmed African-Americans is, yes, sometimes about juries that are racist and sometimes about prosecutors that won't prosecute, but also about the law that governs, you know, police officer misconduct in these cases and the law of qualified immunity and the flaws in that law. That, that's not a new flaw. That's been there for a while. Right. But now people can see it. So for us, as a, as a, you know, for me, 
working in, in kind of the area of legal impact and taking those cases that we think can open up some kind of window, it's been actually quite exciting to be in a moment where people are seeing the the structural uh, inequality rather than just the incidents. And that's really the job of a civil rights lawyer. Mm-hmm. Our job is to see, because we're doing this so much and we're steeped in so many communities, to to see the architecture of inequality and the scaffolding of it, right? Not just the incidents, right? We all see the incidents and we respond to the incidents, but what is the scaffolding? What's the architecture? What's the platform upon which this injustice could happen? And then to dismantle it and to give, as much as we can, communities the tools that they need to rebuild something in its place. To me, that's the job. So if people are seeing the architecture, that's like fantastic. And we don't sound crazy when we talk about the things that we've been talking about for a very long time. There was a time when people were saying, you know, why do we need civil rights organizations? Aren't haven't we arrived? And you know, why do we need law? And what, you know, say that? oh gosh, yes, in the in the halcyon, you know, early days of the Obama administration, when you know it was peace and love, and people thought, you know, we're we're only moving in one direction. You know, we should remember that voter suppression was happening then. Mm-hmm. The, the cases that we're litigating now, we filed in in those days, but people did, couldn't really see it. And so, to the extent as awful as it's been, as painful as it's been, as overwhelming, frankly, some of these days have been, um, particularly in the height of the, you know, conversation about policing reform. And, you know, that 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 48 hours when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed, would, you know, 48 are just kind of the worst hours for many of us. It there We are, I feel like we're, we're closer today to creating a just legal system and to having the legal system fulfill its promise of being able to dismantle the architecture of injustice that I just talked about than we were five, six, seven, eight years ago when people couldn't even see it. Now, what does it mean to still have hope about the justice system Mm -hmm. when I just read that one in eight uh, cases heard in federal court this year would be heard by a judge that Trump appointed? I heard that was like the stat that I heard. I don't know if that's the stat yet, but, okay. you know, one of the things we do is we work on judicial nominations yeah. and confirmations. So Hasn't that's he a big expanded part of our work. the judiciary in a he's way been, that we had He's been doing very uh, quick work. Um, and, you know, it's interesting when we, when, when, you know, he came into office and people said, well, you know, what, what can we do? We don't have the votes. The, you know, the Republicans have the votes in Congress and they're going to rubber stamp all of his nominees. That's what people said. And it's actually not been true. I mean, we've, we, you know, uh, <laughs> some of these nominees, you know, we all remember the, in, the incompetent man, Matthew Peterson, who, you know, in the video, <laughs> right? Like, have you ever been in near, a courtroom? Near, near, room, house. I don't think there was, there was no evidence that he's been in a courthouse. That is um, nice. So, um, you know, who was kind of shamed before the committee or... Tally, the nominee who, uh, you know, in his questionnaire neglected to mention the 1800 blog post that he'd written, including his fawning blog post about the first KKK. Um, These are all things that have been exposed as a result of the depth of the research of civil rights and progressive groups who have been saying, no, that one does not go. (laughs) We understand we can't stop them all, but we're going to stop some of them. So I'm actually quite proud that we've been doing that, that we've been delaying um, the process and and really pushing and, and compelling the committee uh, the Democrats on the committee in particular, to to do the job, to ask the questions. To doesn't, It doesn't matter. Don't go to the votes yet. Ask the questions. And we've seen time and time again that when we take that time and we have the time to do the research, you know, we, we find out things that we needed to know to slow down some of these nominations. So it's not great. But, you know, I bank on I bank on the lawyers at the Legal Defense Fund. We don't have a, a bad record this year. We just won a big DSEG case yesterday. We won our what Texas. What is the case for people that don't know? This is the case in Alabama challenging uh, the Alabama effort by— Alabama has a lot of work to do. Oh, this, that's, our, that's our, like, signature state. <laughs> challenging uh, the effort by a, a group of, of whites in a town, a majority white town in Jefferson County, Alabama, to secede from the Jefferson County School District just as it was beginning to become more integrated and to take with them the nice, shiny new— state-of-the-art magnet high school Okay, that had been attracting students from all over the county and keep it for themselves. And uh, and we just won in the 11th Circuit. That means on appeal. We won at trial, but the trial judge was going to let the secession go forward, and we appealed it. And, and we won, you know, conservative judge, you know, who's like, I, you know, what can I say? You know, the law is the law. Um, you know, our Texas voter ID case, we won that at trial. We've run, won, what, two, three times in the Court of Appeals at this point. 
Uh, we what about it? I thought Texas still has a bad voter ID law. What would yeah. you win? Well, you know, it's a win in in some ways because so so first of all, you know, everybody should know that Texas's voter ID law was the most stringent voter ID law passed in the country after the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder. Uh, and that's the the Supreme Court case that kind of removed the requirement for certain jurisdictions, mostly in the South, but not exclusively. I know some places in New York City were oh, part three, of three boroughs in New York. Yeah, yeah, I had mm-hmm. no clue. Yeah, many of the states were added or jurisdictions were added after the amendments to the Voting Rights Act in the 1970s that included language minorities. And so that's why you have three boroughs. That's why you have places in California and so forth who were also uh, covered by preclearance. And once that, once the, the Supreme Court decided that they knew better about what was required to protect the right to vote and remove that, that then we got all the voter ID laws. And Texas's voter ID law was so over the top. I mean, this is the law that, you know, our student, our, our clients who were students at Prairie View uh, A&M, who had been able to use their state university ID to vote, could no longer use that to vote. All kinds of IDs, employ- employee IDs that African-Americans and Latinos were likely to have were disqualified as IDs that could be used. Your tribal ID could not be used anymore if you were of Native course. American. But your concealed gun carry permit, of course. that was permitted. Of course. So so we challenged that law and we won, we won it at trial. And the trial judge found that the law not only had the effect of discriminating against African-American and Latino voters, but was intentionally passed to discriminate against African-American and Latino voters. And that's a violation of the Constitution. That's a big deal. So we took that case on appeal. The court, the court on appeal said, yeah, we see it has a discriminatory effect. It does violate the Voting Rights Act. We're not sure about whether it was intentional. We're going to send it back to the district courts. So we went back to the district court. And district court said, I'm going to tell you one more time. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that <laughs> was intentional. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, so winning that case was really a big deal. We sued Ben Carson so and happened? HUD last it, year. Oh, so what happened? So, so, we, so we win this um, uh, case back in the district court. Then we have to go back to the Court of Appeals because the state of Texas will not stop appealing this case. In the meantime, we had asked for interim relief for one election to at least allow some other forms of ID and so forth. And they granted that interim relief. And then Texas met and passed a new law that they did. claim ameliorates all the effects of the old law. And of course, our position is... Um, you cannot modify a law that was created for the purpose of discriminating <laughs> against black and Latinos right. and now say, see, it's all legal now. Yeah. No. Uh, and so that's what we're still um, fighting about. Um, this is a law that disenfranchised 600,000 people in, um, you know, in Texas. And, you know, that's like the population of Baltimore. Like that's right. a lot of people. Right. So um, but but nevertheless, nevertheless, you know, when I talk about us winning in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That's one of the most conservative courts of appeals in the country. Hmm. We, when we litigate and we create that trial record, that's why these trial judges that you, that you see, like the guy who was at the table who'd never been near a courthouse, that's why they're so important to us. Of course we care about the Supreme Court. Of course we care about the courts of appeals. But the trial court is where you make your record. And it's actually very hard for a court of appeals judge to overturn the factual findings of a trial judge. Okay. So we, we always just say, just let us in. Just let us in the courtroom. We know what we're doing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Let us try the case. And, um, and I would bank on us. I would I would bank on LDF lawyers, so I'm not scared. That's cool. Now I know you you all just did something around the temporary protected status. Yes, yes. What was it? So, you know, there are two cases that I think. And what is that for people that don't know? Yeah, that is temporary protected status, and it was you said it right, and it is um, a provision of the Immigration and Nationality Act that allows the federal government to. Um, identify a population that that it will grant the status to because in the home country some uh, catastrophic event happened or catastrophe occurred that makes that country no longer able to receive these people back in a way in which they could live and be safe and dignity and so forth. So uh, temporary protected status was first granted to Haiti in 2010 after the earthquake, which we all know was absolutely catastrophic. And it was renewed several times thereafter um, Haiti had a, a terrible cholera outbreak and epidemic, which um, many people know about, and then a Category 4 hurricane um, in the subsequent year. Um, and so temporary protective status is granted uh, by by the federal government, um, in now the Department of Homeland Security. And then if it's to be uh, rescinded, um, it should be based on an, uh, an analysis of the conditions in the country, in the home country, right? Okay. Has it changed enough that now they don't need the status anymore and they really can go back? And what was very apparent this year and last year was that the Trump administration intended to remove temporary protective status uh, from Haitians, not because they had studied conditions in Haiti 
and determined that those conditions had changed so much. (laughs) Right. So that the more than 50,000 Haitians who have temporary protected status could go back. But that instead, they were motivated by a belief that Haitians are unworthy of being in this country and that they were motivated by racial discrimination. And our constitution does not allow government decisions and action that are motivated by racial discrimination against citizens or non-citizens. Um, And we thought it was really important. The case was brought to us. We were asked, would we file the case? We did the study. We were studying, you know, uh, what had happened and the the remarks that Mr. Trump had made, the actions of the Department of Homeland Security, which included uh, the prior summer, asking for information about the the criminality of Haitians and trying to get information on how many Haitians are, uh, you know, using public assistance, basically trying to create a public narrative about why Haitians should not be here. And so we were in the midst of that study when the president made his asshole comments. And it's important because I just do want people to know that the suit is not premised only on those remarks. We, We felt strongly that there was already enough there. And we were working on drafting the complaint when he made um, those remarks about Haiti. And of course, they are relevant and important, but they are not the whole case. And so we filed that suit uh, in federal district court in Maryland. And we we think it's important because it's so important for people to understand how dangerous it is when we let the government make decisions based on racial discrimination. I I was so worried that people would say, well, what does this have to do with us, you know, as, as, as American black people? What, you know, what, how dangerous it is when we allow the government to have impunity when they make dis- dis- uh, decisions based on racial discrimination. And this was the same issue that underlay our suit against the president for the creation of that election integrity commission, which is, was finally disbanded last Thank month. God. But we were the, there were eight suits challenging that commission. Our suit was the one that charged racial discrimination in the, in the creation of it. And, and the, and that the plan, the whole vision of, of widespread voter fraud and who's engaged in wi- widespread voter fraud is covered and drenched in this racial stereotype a lot of it was articulated by Mr. Trump during the campaign, you know, when he was saying, you know, go to go to places and look at people. You know, he was saying to to voters in rural Pennsylvania, right, you got to go to Philadelphia and make sure that they're not voting twice. And all of his surrogates were talking about all of the, you know, illegal, uh, illegal voters um, mm-hmm. from people who are non-citizens and, and to worry about urban areas and so forth. All of this racially coded language that was supposed to perpetuate this myth of widespread voter for, fraud that... Um, this narrow slither of zealots continues to believe, contrary to all evidence, and believes that you know people of color are somehow at greater likelihood of engaging in in-person voter fraud. Now, as we as we start to close, what should be on people's radar mm-hmm. around sort of race in the law? Like mm-hmm. we talked about voting, mm-hmm. we talked about the temporary protected status, mm-hmm. we talked about the judicial nominees. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that we should be paying attention to? Yes, I want to talk a little bit about economic opportunity okay. and um, exclusion in the law because we don't talk about that a lot. I, I, mean, open, I, I don't it's, know. And it's hard because I would love to talk about education, which is also really important okay. and a key issue. But, you know, um, I do want to talk about economic opportunity because I think we tend to separate out these conversations about economic opportunity and civil rights law. And this year of all years is the year we should be putting those two together, right? This is the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. Mm-hmm. Fair Housing Act is passed the week after Martin Luther King is assassinated. You know, Congress had been dragging its feet for a year, didn't want to do it. And only did it because they were in a panic as, you know, urban centers are burning in response to Martin Luther King having been assassinated. And the Fair Housing Act was supposed to address the issue of segregation. That was the whole point. And less people think that segregation is kind of about, like, do you want to live next to a white person? That It, it really is about um, undoing the practices of the federal government that account for why our landscape, particularly our northern urban landscape, looks as it looks. Hmm. And I think many of us think about housing discrimination as a kind of personal thing, right? You know, that that white people didn't want to sell their home to a black person and so forth. They don't think about the fact that this was a systematic set of policies of the United States federal government. And so beginning in the 1930s, when the federal government began to insure home mortgages and did so requiring segregation, requiring racially restrictive covenants hmm. within housing deeds, even having a sample racially restrictive covenant for <laughs> housing deeds. Shut up. At the government level? Yes. Wow. The whole idea of redlining, that came from the federal government. It was the federal government identifying which communities were uh, hazardous in terms of thinking about where you might provide mortgage insurance. Obviously, the red line was around the communities that had the most African-Americans or most African-American concentrated. You know, the green line was for the white communities and so forth. 
post World War II. I just didn't know they had samples of the race. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's real yes. bold. Post World War II, this country engaged in a massive investment to create the white middle class. And that was done by um, all the things I've described, providing these housing opportunities. You know, the GI Bill, which is, you know, a, was available certainly to black and white GIs, but where you could go to live with your, with your housing voucher or where you could go to school as a result of the GI Bill as a white GI was very different than what you could do as a black GI, right? So if you're, if you, we both can get this, you know, support, and yet I can only live here in Chicago, right? In the, in the most concentrated urban part of Chicago, but this white person can go to the suburbs, right? That, that begins to develop the um, kind of economic portfolio of that family. The interstate highway system and the billions of dollars, what, $14 billion, is what made the white suburbs possible. Mm. It was not created for us. It, it was created to make this possible, to make this movement across the country possible, and it made the white suburbs possible. The, the government providing tax uh, abatements and support to all white suburban enclaves like Levittown. I mean, this was the, what the federal government did. And the result of that generations later is that white families were able to accumulate wealth in ways that black families were not able to. And today they will say, my parents worked really hard. It was just us. We worked really hard to get the house. And you know what? That may be true. But it is also true that the entire apparatus of the federal government was marshaled to help that happen. They wanted to create a white middle class and they made one. So the question for us today is, if we were serious about dealing with racial and socioeconomic inequality, then we would have to make investments that at least equaled, right, in today's dollars, the investments that were made to create the landscape that we currently live in. And so... Um, a lot of the, the focus that I hope will be, you know, people will kind of engage with this year is some of the work that we're doing around housing discrimination. You know, one issue we're really focused on is how do, how do black people lose their homes? And so we're engaged in a whole project around, um, around that issue. How do you lose your home? Well, there are lots of different ways. But, you know, one way that we're really focused on has to do with the way taxes are assessed. Um, we challenge the tax assessments in um, Detroit and Wayne County. Um, that were essentially based on kind of pre-2008, pre-housing crisis figures. And African-Americans were just losing their homes because these tax bills actually no, were no longer proportionate to the value of the house and they could not keep up and these, their houses were being foreclosed on. Um, in Flint, Michigan last year, it's hard to believe. I mean, here's a place that didn't even have potable water. But Flint What's was potable water. Potable water is water you can drink, right? You all know what the water in Flint was. They were prepared to foreclose and were preparing to foreclose on 7,000 homeowners uh, because of water tax liens. That is, you don't pay your water bill and they put You're a tax like, lien on your house. We can't even drink the water. Exactly. Um, and were you so guys we, involved with that? We did. We engaged with you know, uh, activists on the ground to convince the, the mayor and the city council to, to do a moratorium on tax foreclosures. But it was a temporary moratorium. And so now we're kind of working on what's the permanent <laughs> fix. <laughs> wow. Uh, this is a problem in Baltimore that we're also working on that just, just that keep, keep a pin in that for the future. We, we'll come back when we've got it really up and running. But that's another way. La last year, it was you know, uh, 1,500 homes in Baltimore last summer. This is how people lose their homes. So, so one project is Never looking at that, that, looking at the issues of lending discrimination. And, and there's a big study coming out um, this week, later this week, about banking and discrimination in, in lending and banking. And so just trying to look at all of these economic levers that need to be undone if we're really serious about talking about economic opportunities. So I love that people are using the word infrastructure this week and, and for the last few weeks. But, you know... Uh, infrastructure is also a, like a civil rights issue, mm -hmm. right? And you know, Baltimore, you know, one of the issues we worked on was the red line. I mean, here was a city, here's a city in Baltimore that the Department of Justice described as two Baltimores, right? And the two Baltimores are about race without question, but the, the city's also geographically uh, separated. Yeah. All of these second tier cities, Baltimore, Cleveland, St. Louis, Milwaukee, these are cities that don't have really robust rapid transit. By design. By design. And what does rapid transit have to do with economic opportunity? Well, you have to be able to get to the jobs, which actually are located, you know, sometimes in the suburbs at the end of the city. If you live in West Baltimore and you want to work at Johns Hopkins Bayview, right, all the way on the east side, uh, and, and Johns Hopkins, to their credit, is actually an institution that does hire, for example, ex offenders. How long does it take you to get from the west side of Baltimore all the way to Hopkins Bayview? A long time, well, a long time on bus. That's yeah. right. And that means that you have to leave, leave your kids in the morning. You're not walking them to school because you've got to get to your 7 a.m. shift if you're, if you're a nurse's aide. 
right? That means you leave your kids in the dark to go to school by themselves. And then we wonder, did they get to school? Did they have breakfast? Did they have their homework? All the narrative that's going to happen in the school about who that child is. And you got to take that bus ride across town, a 17 minute drive door to door if you were in a private car, but an hour and a half because it's going to make all the stops and meander, right? So, so, but we had a governor who canceled the the subway plan for Baltimore City that was supposed to go east-west through the black communities, uh, connecting them uh, finally, you know, after all these years. Uh, but in the wake of the of the Freddie Gray unrest, the, the governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, decided to, to unilaterally cancel the red line, which was a subway that the community had been active and that had been in the works for 15 years. Uh, I went to see Anthony Fox, the then Department of uh, Secretary of Transportation, who had the money to give us, had, you know, <laughs> was holding it. Uh, we had already spent in Baltimore, in Maryland, $350 million study, studying it. The federal government had another billion to give. But it was canceled and there was and that money never came to Baltimore. So if we want to talk about infrastructure, infrastructure is also a civil rights issue. It's not something out there. It's not about just when you make the decision between bridges and highways and mass transit, you're making a decision that has racial implications. Hmm. Now, one of the questions we ask everybody at the end is, what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stayed with you? Well, so so many pieces of advice. The one that's really helping me right now is that this is a marathon and not a sprint. And um, and the image of the relay race, it's very important to me. I'm, uh, you know, you you are part of a legacy civil rights organization founded by Thurgood Marshall with all of these incredible leaders. There's tremendous pressure in that, you know, the maintaining the excellence that we're that we're known for and wanting to do to accomplish, you know, something important, but understanding that you're running the part of the race that's yours. And that at the end of the day, you, you want to pass that baton back to the next group that is going to do what they need to do in their time. And that actually lowers the pressure a little bit because you're not doing everything. You're doing the things that are showing up in your moment. You know, I, Thurgood Marshall and Constance Baker Motley and the lawyers of the Legal Defense Fund in the early 1960s when the activism started, late 1950s, they, they didn't even know what it was. They were saying, well, we have to come get this man out of jail. What happened? You know, mm-hmm. they were, you know this, this was new to them. They had to figure it out right. and they had to become lawyers for that moment. So just learning that you're in your moment and just work your moment and then pass the baton. There we go. Boom. Well, we consider your friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod of the People. See you back here on Tuesday of next week. Make sure you rate uh, this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, see you next week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 